Good morning, ZPC. This is a uh, happy day, I know, for those of you who actually showed up, who watched the whole Purdue game last night. I don't know what time it actually ended. What time was it over, like at midnight or something? I, uh, I wouldn't know. But, uh, but congratulations to you, to IU fans. We just, we just, we just keep praying um, for you guys. So, um, but basketball is not the only thing that is happening. Uh, great banquet is happening right now, which has been great. Things are going well in there, and it's always fun to go and participate in that. And um, and, and much other ministry is occurring. And so today uh, we are continuing our look um, at uh, at our True North series and um, at how we respond to the grace. Of God, And so for this morning, uh, we are going to uh, hear or begin, our text is going to be on Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And so I invite you to hear these words from Paul. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we give you praise this morning for this opportunity to gather together as sisters and brothers in Christ, to worship with one another, to sing with one another, to proclaim your word, to know, God, that you have been at work in our midst. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So we are uh, continuing to look at how we respond to grace and what that looks like after we have received the love and grace of Jesus. How do we, uh, as, as, um, as Christ followers, in what ways might we be able to express our gratitude to God? And so we've done that through looking at that we worship, that we pray, that we read scripture, um, that we use our spiritual gifts. That was last week and And today, we are looking at the fact that we should respond by sharing our faith, by sharing that love and that grace that we have received. Now, another way to say that is that we are going to look at evangelism. But I don't really like to use the word evangelism because there's a lot of baggage that a lot of us may have when it comes to evangelism. And so we use the euphemism, sharing our faith. And one of the people who has some baggage around the issue of evangelism, or that word, quite frankly, is me. Uh, and I, I've shared some of this before. Uh, a couple years ago, we talked about a similar subject, and I talked about how uh, when I was in high school, I felt like a good Christian should should don some witness wear, you know, the shirts that say something about Jesus. And so uh, when I was in high school, I would finally, I would, I would go out and I would wear the shirt uh, to school, but then I would do everything I could the whole day to make sure that nobody could actually see what kind of shirt I was wearing. And so I'd move quickly or I'd lean up against the, a wall or do something, right, which was kind of defeating the purpose, I suppose. But, but that was my own wrestling, and that continued even into college when I was in college. 
college, uh, my first year, I joined um, a group called Pioneers for Christ, and their one real mission was to go out and to strike up conversations with strangers and to tell them about God. And, uh, and so I can remember the, the, the initial meeting. It was an icebreaker, and, and we did this kind of icebreaker game. You've probably done something like this. It was like nine boxes that had little statements in it, right? And uh, the statements were things like, you know, I've lived in five different states, or I have three siblings or more. And you go around, and you find somebody, you know, who's done that, and then you find out what their name is, and you write your little name in the box, and you try to be the first person to fill out all the boxes. And well, one of the boxes said, I have led someone to Christ. And so, uh, so this young woman came up to me, and she said, you know, she looked at that, and she said, you know, have you led someone to Christ? And I said, um, no. And she looked at me incredulously, and she said, you have never led anyone to Christ? Now, she was kind of cute, and so I then said, Oh, led someone to Christ. I misunderstood you. Yeah, of course I have. And, and, and filled that out. Now, I'm hopeful that one of the unforgivable sins is not that you, you, know, you lie about having led someone to Christ. But I, I did that as a moment of confession. And, and what we would do, what this group would do, is we would go out on Friday nights. This is what I did in college on Friday nights. And we would go to country western bars. Uh, this was in Tennessee. And we would go to the parking lot. And we would try to find, amongst the trucks and other vehicles that were there, someone who was sober enough for us to tell them about Jesus. It was incredibly awkward for me. I hated every minute of it, but I felt like this is what I was supposed to do. Now, it would be easy for me to kind of look back at that time and say, you know what, I don't really think that that was probably the most effective thing to do, or I'm not sure how helpful that really was. Uh, but truth be told, I've also discovered that there are people for whom they are really good at striking up conversations in kind of non-manipulative, non-coercive, Christ-glorifying ways with strangers. They're really good at that. And those people, as we reflect on last week's sermon, those people, I think, have the spiritual gift of evangelism. And that's a spiritual gift that, quite honestly, I, as of yet, do not have. And I was thinking about that as I began to reflect on Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Michael Frost, uh, he, I was watching a video that he did earlier this week, and he was talking about this particular passage, and he has an interesting kind of interpretation. I'm not fully convinced yet, but I think it is something that, is, that, that, that could perhaps be true, which is, he says, if you notice there, in verses 3 and 4, Paul asks the people of Colossae to pray for him and for his group. And he says, pray for us that the doors would be open where we can then explain the mysteries of God. And he said, what you notice is that you he doesn't immediately say, as Paul does in other parts of his letter, now you pray, now I will pray for you about that as well. He doesn't say that. And what, what Frost would contend is that what he was actually asking them to pray for is for him and for his group who have the gift of evangelism. Clearly Paul had the spiritual gift of evangelism and to pray uniquely for them that they would be able to explain the mysteries of God and that he realized that the people of Colossae, that they didn't all have that same gift. So he didn't say, I'm going to pray for you for this. Which in one sense, right, is a little bit of a whew. But 
He then goes on and he does tell the church, all of those, whether they are gifted with the evangelism or not, he does tell them to do several things. And what does he tell them to do? He tells them, first of all, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. What does that mean? That means don't be one thing within the church and with church folk and then be something else outside of it. Rather, think wisely when you are outsiders. Do the things that we have been telling you that Paul has been writing to the Colossians. Do those things, not just when you're with church folks, but to outsiders as well. And then he goes on, he says, make the most of your time. What does that mean? Well, of course, this is something that we talk about, right? That when you get on your deathbed, I have never met anyone on their deathbed who said, I wish that instead of only watching 12 hours of television a weekend, I would have spent 13 hours of, uh, a, a, a weekend, right? Now, I know that's a little bit hard during March Madness, and some of you are adding up your hours right now, right? No, no, no. You don't ever hear that, nor do you ever hear, I wish I would have worked 65 hours of, uh, uh, you know, a week instead of just 55 hours, right? No, what do you hear? You hear people, at least I hear people, if they have regrets, it is that they didn't spend enough time with loved ones. They didn't spend enough time caring for people, giving to others, serving others. And so, Paul says, make sure you are spending your time wisely. And then he goes on, and he says, and when you talk, speak with grace, right? Which means speak, be kind to people, be graceful, be merciful, be compassionate, be gentle in your conversation. And when you are talking about God, he says, make sure that it is seasoned with salt, which just means make it interesting. Don't be dull or boring. Try to be flavorful when you are talking about God. All of these things, he says, do these things, right? And so on one hand, we can thank God that we aren't perhaps called, if we don't have the gift of evangelism, that we don't have to constantly be kind of coming up with conversation starters with non-Christians that we can try to kind of lead towards Jesus. But on the other hand, it's fairly daunting, actually, what Paul tells us to do. Quite frankly, it might be a little bit easier— to strike up conversations with sober people in country western bar parking lots than it is to do what Paul is asking us to do. Because you see, Paul is making an assumption here, which is that we are going to talk with people about Jesus. And why are we going to talk with them about Jesus? Not because we've been given the gift of evangelism and we need to strike up conversations in random places with people but because we are going to be answering them. And if we are answering somebody with great seasoned salt conversations, then that means what? Someone, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, but even before that, if you're answering someone, they must have... Yeah, you guys shouldn't have stayed up quite so late last night. They should have asked you a... And quite frankly, that's a bit daunting, is it not? To ask whether or not we are living our lives in such a way that people are asking us, why do you live in the way that you do? 
that we must be living a life in some dramatic way that is different than the way that everybody else is living their lives. And so in one sense, the simplest question that I have for you today, and this is a question that Michael Frost asked in this video, is are you living a questionable life? Are you living a questionable life? And when is the last time that someone asked you why it is that you live as you do? Right? Oftentimes when it comes to thinking about sharing our faith, we keep thinking, well, what if I don't have all the answers? What if I can't figure out? I don't know everything about the Bible. I don't know everything about God. I'm really not that good anyways, and I, I'm always falling. And we begin to ask, well, what, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? Maybe the best place to start is not actually what are you going to say. Maybe the best place to start is to ask yourself, is anyone even care if I'm following Jesus at all? Because what people want to know, more than whether or not you can figure out, well, what does Colossians say about this or that, or, or, or whether or not it's 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, but what they want to know more than any of that is this. Does Jesus make a difference? Does he make a difference to you? And would he make a difference to me? So our question is, are you living a questionable life when it comes to spreading the gospel, and being a Christ follower. One of the fascinating things that scholars like to do when it comes to questions about evangelism is to look back over church history and to see when was the church really growing? What did that look like? And one of the places that they oftentimes go is they go back to the 4th century. In the 4th century, Constantine, I know this is very exciting, Constantine, um, he, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But his son, named Julian, was not all that excited about that. And so when Julian became emperor, he was doing everything he could to try to make Christianity no longer the official religion, but to go back to paganism. He wanted to go back to paganism. And so it's interesting to read some of Julian's letters. And Julian, as he kind of an, as an evangelist for paganism, if you will, he's writing letters to other governors, right, to other officials, as he tries probably people who he's like, come on, let's get this thing back to pagan again, right? And what does he do? He writes letters, and he asks them. Sometimes he's a little bit upset, it seems. He, he's kind of like, are you guys so blind? Are you so dumb? Do you not see how exactly it is that Christianity is spreading? And here's what he says in his letters. He says, because of the fact that Christians— are out being kind to strangers. This is what Julian said, being kind to strangers. Not only are they being kind to strangers, he says, but they're caring for the burial of the dead. They're living sober lives. They're caring for the poor, but not just their own poor. They're caring for our poor, for the pagan poor, if you will. What Julian is seeing is that the reason why Christianity was spreading was because of the fact that they were doing all of these things. In fact, Julian then says, he says, we need to be doing those things as well, which is kind of interesting to think that you have a pagan who is asking them to start living more Christ-like lives so that paganism can flourish. Thank you for getting that. That's kind of odd. Now, what were they doing? 
Well, remember Colossians 3, right? Just a little bit before Colossians 4. We talked about this passage not long ago. Paul tells them, clothe yourselves with compassion, with mercy, with love, with kindness. And guess what? The church in the fourth century was clothing themselves with those things. And guess what was happening? People were beginning to notice. People were asking questions. People were drawn to this community that was doing those things. Right? So how were they spreading the faith? Well, they were simply actually doing what Jesus had asked them to do. Or think about think about St. Patrick. Right? Now we'd be remiss if just two days away from St. Patrick's Day, we didn't bring up Patrick, right? Now this may surprise you, but the biggest thing that St. Patrick, his real goal was not to spread the gospel of the color green, nor was it to talk about a man who was a leprechaun, nor was it to help people to experience what it's like to drink copious amounts of beer. Right? I, have you ever thought, I was thinking that this week as the tent around the friendly tavern was going up, could, have you ever thought on St. Patty's Day, have you ever thought of what Patrick would do if he happened to just walk in? Have you ever thought about how odd he would be like, well, wait, so I was a missionary in Ireland, and somehow it's resulted in this? It's kind of weird for the guy, right? I mean, Patrick was a guy, he grew up in northeast England. You may already know all this. He was kidnapped by some Irish pirates who knew they were Irish pirates. He was kidnapped at the age of 16, taken back to Ireland. While he was, not back to Ireland, but taken to Ireland, he was there for around, I think, six years it was. Um, he was converted in that time. Somehow he came to faith as he was out in the nature and all these things, and, and he went back then, or he escaped, actually. He went down and uh, found a ship, and he talked his way onto the ship and went back to England. He then became ordained. He lived there for many more years in England. And then at the age of, I think it was 48, 48 or 49, when most people, his age, it was already past the average age when men at that age would have been dead already, right? So if you feel like you're already past the age when you were dead already, there's still hope for you. Because it was only at that point that he then went back to Ireland and he began the church, really, there in Ireland that spread throughout all of that country and even over into Scotland, right? It's a remarkable story, right, that we don't always hear about on St. Patrick's Day. But now, if you were to give Patrick a spiritual gifts inventory, I have a sneaking suspicion that he would be very high on evangelism. But when people look at why it is that Christianity spread so quickly and so overwhelmingly in Ireland, it's not because Patrick was going around and preaching in every open square and just kind of doing everything. He's not God. He can only do so much. No, no. It's because he was cultivating a form of Christianity that was easily translatable in Ireland. And what did that look like? Well, one of the things it was is that it was remarkably communal communally, community-like, focused. They were living life together. They were living out their faith together. They were looking after one another. They were praying for one another, right? And people began to look at that community. The Irish began to look at that community, and they said something is different about that community. And they began to ask questions about why it is that this community looks so different. 
Remember again, when we talk about Paul, and he gives these lists of these attributes that he wants. What have we said? Those attributes are always attributes that help to build community. Right? This is why we say when we talk about building community, this is not some afterthought. No, no, no. It is essential because God is a God of relationships. Right? And so they looked at this community in Ireland, and they were overwhelmed by it. And people began to kind of follow him and follow Jesus. Right? But not only that, the Celts also, the Irish were also, uh, the church was good at pointing out how their faith mattered all of the time. Not just in what happened in a particular building or on a particular day, or even what just happened in the afterlife. How it mattered daily to them. In fact, they developed prayers that the, the, the Celtic church did. They developed prayers that they memorized that talked about what to do in very menial kinds of things. So every morning, what would you do? You would light a fire, right? This is what you had to do back in the day. So when they were lighting the fire, here's a prayer that they would say. I will kindle my fire this morning in presence of holy angels of heaven. God, kindle thou in my heart within a flame of love to my neighbor, to my foe, to my friend, to my kindred all, to the brave, to the knave, to the thrall. Now, you notice here that what's happening is that as soon as they go out in the morning, all of a sudden, they are lighting their fire. They are beginning to think about God. They see this physical thing that they are doing, kind of a menial task, and all of a sudden, then, their mind is drawn to God. But do you notice it doesn't just kind of stay up there? What happens? All of a sudden then it moves. Kindle in my heart a flame of love to my neighbor, to my foe, to my friend, to my kindred, to the brave, to the knave, which is, we don't use the word knave that much, which is like the dishonest people, if you will, to the thrall, which are like servants, right? So it's fascinating that here they are, thanks Stevie, oh, here they are, they're, they're doing this fire, this very typical kind of thing, and all of a sudden that work is making them think about God. And that work is making them think about what kind of heart should I have. And then that is kind of making them think about what am I called to do today, to love my neighbor, to love my enemy, in this very kind of simple, menial task. But what happens when we begin to realize that Christianity is about more than just what we do right here, but is about what we are doing throughout our day, is that people begin to notice. People begin to draw, be drawn to that. People begin to ask questions about that. Nobody's going to ask questions, by and large, if all they see is that the only difference that Jesus makes is that you come here on a Sunday morning. And quite frankly, that's not all that interesting to people. As I've shared before, what is much more uh, kind of drawing to people is to be able to think about staying asleep until 9.30 or just going to a coffee shop in the morning, right? Oh, you got it. Yes, it is. Right? What's going to draw people to Christ is when people, not when they just come in here on Sunday mornings, but is when their lives are changed throughout the week. Those are the kinds of things that pique people's curiosity, that make them want to ask Questions. Those are the things that lead to a questionable life. Now let me be clear of what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we never need to speak about Jesus. Because here's the assumptions that Paul makes. One, people are going to ask us questions by the way that we live. And two, 
that when they do, we actually have to answer. Which is what makes people kind of nervous, right? Because Paul, he, he ramps up the pressure. He doesn't just say answer. He says, make sure that your answers are interesting, right? Flavor them, if you will, with salt. Don't be dull and boring. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I've got to kind of have a, you know, as I think about sharing my story, I need to kind of come up with two or three jokes, you know, and, and I kind of in the middle, you know, say, hey, have you heard the one about the rabbi and the priest? And the, you know, is that, is that what that means? Do something to kind of spice it up. No, I don't think that, I mean, if you've got a good joke, you might as well tell it, but I don't, I don't think that's exactly what it means. What is the best way to make something interesting? The best way to make something interesting, whether you're talking about Jesus or talking about anything else, is to have actually experienced something with that subject and to be passionate about that subject. Oftentimes, the things that are most interesting, the ways that we talk that are the most interesting to people, are things that have actually affected us and shaped us. Right? It's a bit like the Indy 500. Five years ago, if you had asked me about the Indy 500, I would have given you an incredibly boring story. That the Indy 500 is basically a bunch of cars that go around this oval track in Indianapolis until they have gone 500 miles. Pretty exciting. But then, three years ago, I got to go. Now, was I excited? I was okay excited, but not nearly as excited as I've been to do a lot of other things. But I went, and as I was standing there, first of all, I mean, the first thing, first of all, you just see the massive amounts of crowds, right? I mean, all the people are there, and your heart starts going because there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of energy. And then you begin to see the cars, and you're like, holy cow, I had no idea the cars were going so fast, right? And you'd see them fly by, but not just that, it was the volume, right? The fact that I couldn't even hear what the people next to me were saying, you know, the volume, and then the power, right? I mean, you could feel the power of these engines, and as they were going around, and the races, and it's getting closer, and the, I mean, it was cool, right? It was so much so that when I went last year, I mean, I hurried up. As soon as the sermon was over, I, I kind of, I'm sure this is probably the shortest worship service I've ever done, and I, I, I quickly changed, and I, and I drove down, and I got out about a mile or a mile and a half away from the, from the, from the, uh, uh, from the oval, from the speedway, and I ran. I was in my khakis and a polo shirt, and I just ran. I mean, I was sweating like a pig, but I ran. Why? Because I wanted to get there before the, before the start of the race, right? That's one of the most exciting parts, right? I was so excited about it, right? And, and when Megan and I were in Florida four or five weeks ago, they were setting up already in St. Petersburg for the Grand Prix, and I said to her, Meg, you know, we really, you really should go sometime. She's never been. You know, it really is kind of cool, you know, when you go there. It's kind of fun, right? Now look, I don't know anything about the details. I don't know about pit stops. I don't know about carburetors. I don't even know, honestly, I was typing this out. I don't even know how to spell carburetor, right? I don't know anything about, you know, race, particular race drivers, all those kind of details. I can't tell you about that. But what I can do is I can tell you it was pretty exciting. I can tell you that it was pretty fun to actually be there and be a part of it. And when I tell the story now versus how I would have talked about the Indy 500 five years ago is dramatically different. And if we want to be a people who, when people ask us, why is it that you live the way you do, the best way for us to do that with some energy and some excitement 
is not because we've seen people who are following Jesus or we've read about it, but is when we have been experiencing Jesus in fresh ways. And how do we experience Jesus in fresh ways? Be alert and be doing the things that we've already talked about. The ways that you experience Jesus in fresh ways is when you begin to experience Jesus, not just on Sundays, but when you are living alert and you're seeing Jesus throughout the week. It's when you're living in community and you're studying together and you're praying together and you're caring for one another, right? It's when you go out and you are caring for the poor. It's when you go out and you are befriending the stranger. That when you are acting and doing these things, when you're worshiping, these are the ways to begin to experience Jesus. And guess what happens when you begin doing those things? You get excited, and people start asking you questions. And when they start asking you questions, you know how to answer flavored with salt because you've been experiencing Jesus. It's the cycle of sharing your faith. This is not just for the gifted evangelist. This is for all of us. I was thinking today, I've been struggling, not today, this week towards the end of the week was saying, how do I end this conversation? Do I just end by saying, are you living a questionable life? Which is kind of a cool ending, I think. And I could do that, I suppose, and just kind of walk off. But for some reason, I was kind of discontent with that ending. One of the things, of course, that you notice is that oftentimes when I come up here, what I do is I talk about the things that we could really improve on. But yesterday, as I was kind of here for the funeral of Matthew Glidewell, and as I've been thinking, continually thinking about this, what Julian said about the early church and about the ways that they kind of cared for the dead, if you will, which I thought, well, that's kind of odd. One of the things that was brought to my attention were the people who came up to me, and they come up to me because they see me as representing you, which I know is a scary thing. But they came up to me, and they just said, I want to thank you for for what ZPC did for Matthew. And I want to thank you for the ways that you guys loved him and cared for him. And I want to thank you for the way that you've cared for us we got a Facebook message to, from Z, to ZPC earlier this week that, that just said from, a, from somebody I didn't even know, and she just said, you know, we know that you guys shaped Matthew. He talked about you guys all the time. And we want to know, the friends of ours, we want to do something. Is How can we give money to something for ZPC because of the ways that you clearly shaped him? And then earlier this week, on last Sunday actually, from another family, someone who lost a loved one not long ago. And she said, you know what, I just want you to know that this home group, even though it's been a while, several months since we lost a loved one, they reached out to us just to tell us, we want you to know you haven't been forgotten. And I thought, well, here's ZPC caring for those who are dying. And then I thought back as I was thinking about this last night, about two, mu- or about two weeks ago, I should say, two different people who came up to me and they said, you know what, they're not ZPCers. They said, but we know, we, we know that as pastors, you probably hear a lot of different things and you, maybe you get grief at times, but we want you to know that we notice something different about this community. We, we want you to know that 
that there's something unique about the ways in which the ZPCers are connect with one another. And we, we want you to know that. And then recently I've been having conversations with some ZPCers in their own personal lives and, and in the ways in which, you know, they used to be kind of just Sunday morning people, hit or miss, maybe once a month or whatnot. And they said, you know what? What's begun happening is that, is, that, is that we've begun to kind of experience Jesus more. And, and so it's really actually changing the way we're living our lives. And so people, friends, people that we've known for quite some time, they're coming up to us and they're saying, you know, what happened to you? You know, where's the old whatever their name is? And as I began to think about that, I realized that in a lot of ways, actually, ZPC, we're not perfect. You know I have to say that. We're not perfect. We have room to grow. But in many ways, we are sharing our faith. And if there's one thing it seems to me that I want you to know, whether I feel like this is from the Spirit of God, I want you to know, I just want to say thank you. And keep going. I want you to know that people are noticing what you are doing. This is not so that you can kind of give a pat on your back, but you know, again, I'm not one who usually stands up here and says, hey, great job, everyone. I love you, but I want to stand up here today and I want to say thank you. Keep living questionable lives that people are noticing, that they are asking questions. Keep going. Well done. My hope and my prayer is for all of us to continue to experience the love and grace of Jesus and then to reflect that and to see how more and more in our midst might be able to experience the same love and grace of Jesus that we have. Keep living questionable lives for the glory of God and for his glory alone. Amen? Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the ways in which you are at work in our midst. It's easy at times, Lord, to see where we're falling short to see what we could be doing more of or less of. And yet sometimes, Lord, it is good and right for us simply to give you praise for what it is that you're doing in our midst. So I thank you, Lord. I thank you for the many here, those who care and love for the families of those who have passed away, those who choose forgiveness rather than holding grudges. Those who are hospitable to the stranger. Those who are seeing why you make such a difference, not just on what they do on Sunday mornings, but what you do throughout their week. Give us the courage to continue to do so. That people may ask us questions that we might, with excitement and flavor, express to them what a difference you have made in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.